Thank you, Paul, and thank you everyone for having me here today. Um, I'm, I'm honored to be here on behalf of the Times-Dispatch to introduce today's program and the speaker. Um, I had the opportunity to ride the elevator down with him, and um, I'm sure that if our brief conversation in the elevator is any indication, this is going to be a really interesting afternoon. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, in his latest book, our prize-winning uh, speaker traces the competition for control of North America from the landing in 1519 of Spanish troops in what became Mexico to 1871 when, the, with the Treaty of Washington, Britain accepted American mastery in North America. The story he tells is one of conflict, diplomacy, and geopolitics. The eventual result was the creation of the United States of America, the country that stretches from the Atlantic to the Pacific and dominates the continent. The gradual withdrawal of France and Spain, the British accommodation to the expanding US reality, the impact of the American Civil War, and the subjugation of native peoples are all carefully drawn out. Jeremy Black is no stranger to the Virginia Historical Society. In 2003, he gave two lectures, one on the American Revolution and the other on World War II. He is a professor of history at the University of Exeter and in 2008, a recipient of the Samuel Eliot Morrison Prize. He's the author of numerous books on military history, including most recently, Crisis of Empire, Britain and America in the 18th Century, and The Great War and the Making of the Modern World. And of course, today's subject, Fighting for America, the Struggle for Mastery in North America, 1519 to 1871. So please joining me in welcoming Jeremy Black, who will speak to us today about fighting for America, the struggle for mastery in North America. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for coming along. I'm very pleased to be back here. I always enjoy my trips to Virginia, and it's a particular pleasure to see a number of friends in the, in the audience. I would also like to join the president in thanking the sponsors uh, all of us know that the process of civic engagement in which, um, as it were, scholarship is linked to the wider community is really important, but civic engagement can only take place if people are willing to support uh, institutions such as this great institution and lecture series. So I myself would like, as the speaker, to say thank you not only to you as the audience, but also to the sponsors. Now... There's a mobile phone. Okay. Uh, I always say to my students, leave your mobile phones on, but please leave something incriminating that was going to amuse the rest of us. Anyway. <laughs> um, now, my subject is, in some respects, a story that is parts of which are familiar to you, but it also is designed to serve a wider purpose. I think when you're giving a historical talk, you should always try and introduce to the audience, as it were, key conceptual problems that vex historians. And the key conceptual problem we're going to be looking at is the problem of inevitability. Is what happens in history inevitable or is it not? And if it is not inevitable, how likely is it? And what is the respective role of individuals and groups of structures and contingencies. And I'm going to use that as the conceptual point as I discuss the making of North America. And I've got this map up uh, from the collection here. And this map shows, it's a modern map of course, but it shows North America or what becomes the United States in 1810. And the point about the map is an obvious one. 
you will see that the shaping of your country was totally uncertain at that point. There was no way of suggesting even that the United States was necessarily the major player territorially, not only in North America, but in fact in what was to become the United States of America. Now in this lecture I'm going to focus on the period that is of greatest concern to me for the point of the lecture, which is the period from 1783 to 1871, and before somebody asks me why 1871, I will tell you that 1871 marks the date in which the British decide to settle their outstanding differences with the United States and to pull all bar two of their garrisons out of North America, which really settles the North America question. And that's what I'm going to focus on, that period. But before that, I want to make some comments about the earlier period, the period from 1519 to 1783. And I want to say and emphasise the role of uncertainty in that very period. I, after all, am speaking to you um, in English. It would have been in no way inevitable that this kind of gathering um, would have taken place in this language as opposed to French or Spanish if you were thinking about how North America had developed in the 16th, 17th, or indeed early 18th century. It's worth pointing out um, that what becomes English America, or British America if you want to use that phrase, what becomes English America is in fact a relatively late arrival in North America. The initial arrival in North America is Spanish. Uh, North America gets settled by Europeans from south to north, as it were. In other words, the key early settlements, the key early civilization of, a Europe, of Europeans in North America is in what we call Mexico. As far as offshore islands are concerned, the key offshore island is Cuba, not Newfoundland, for example. And across most of North America, north of the Spanish area, there is no European impact at all prior to the early 17th century. There are, of course, one or two Vikings that arrive in Labrador at the beginning of the 11th century. There are English fishermen off the coast of Newfoundland in the 16th century. There are one or two short-lived French settlements in what we would now call the St. Lawrence Valley. But essentially, the European presence is peripheral. And it's an accident in many senses, an accident born of long struggle, that, it, uh, that North America ends up as British North America. Indeed, it's worth bearing in mind that next year is a major anniversary in the history of British North America, and in fact, a major anniversary in the history of Virginia, and that is the Peace of Paris of 1763, which saw the end of the French presence in Canada. And remember, French Canada stretched down uh, well into the Ohio River Valley area, and of course meant that Virginia had a hostile neighbour to the west. And, of course, the, host the hostile neighbour to the West is quite formative in early Virginia history. Well, that is only really settled um, in the fighting, in the conflict of what you call the French and Indian War and what I call the Seven Years' War. That's because The reason for that difference, sometimes Americans ask me about this, is that the fighting actually started in 1754, but the war is only declared in 1756. It's possible in the 18th century, as in the modern age, to fight wars without declaring them. Um, and therefore, there is different, different timing on each side of the Atlantic for that particular conflict. Now, it in no way was inevitable that the British would emerge as triumphant in their struggles with France and Spain, or indeed with the Native Americans. 
For example, if you're in Carolina, as late as 1713, 1714, and you're up against the Amacy there, this was a very tough war which threatened the environs of Charleston itself. As far as Virginia is concerned, less threatening, of course, uh, to the lowland, but the Cherokee War at the end of the 1750s is a serious war. As far as British uh, presence west of the Appalachians, west of the Alleghenies is concerned, Pontiac's war in 1764-5 is a serious conflict. So the Native Americans themselves are an important challenge. And there was no inherent reason why Western troops, as far as conflict was concerned, are necessarily better. I mean, as you are aware, some people are very prone to take a technological interpretation of war, but the key technological enablers that the West had initially had all been lost by, uh, in terms of comparative capability gap by the late 18th century. The West had the horse. Well, of course, the horse gets diffused to Native Americans. The West had the gun. Well, of course, the gun gets diffused to Native Americans. In large part, people selling guns to the Native Americans, their Native American supporters and allies and to, in order to win allies. The West has shipping. Well, the Native Americans do not have the equivalent, but of course, shipping is a major advantage if you're operating on the coastal littoral. It's not any particular advantage if you're operating into the interior. So in terms of actually capability gap with the Native Americans, during the period of British America, the actual strength of the Western presence is relatively limited. As far as the French are concerned, though, of course, the British have a powerful advantage, the one that we've just mentioned, that both the British and the French are fundamentally colonial systems along the coastline. They are totally dependent in many respects, the French more than the British, but they are totally dependent on maritime links back to Europe. If you sever those maritime links, you are then in a position to make major attacks, amphibious attacks, on the coastal bases or the riverine bases of your opponent, and if you do so successfully, you will win. And of course, success takes time. The biggest British expedition, again, in North America in the early 18th century is a total disaster. The British send a, last, a large amphibious force against Quebec in 1711. It runs aground on rocks um, in the St. Lawrence because it's poorly charted. Over a 1,000 troops drown. Um, in that period, incidentally, very few people could swim, could swim. So if a ship went down, usually everybody on it drowned. Um, and there were no, never enough rowboats. Uh, sort of thing that would be inconceivable in a modern world. I mean, if you think of cruise liners, it would be inconceivable that any of them could sink with anybody dying. Anyway, um, anyway the, 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 um, the British did not do brilliantly at that stage. I think it's worth bearing in mind that although the British were fit for purpose in the 17th century to fight local wars against Native Americans on the eastern seaboard, things like King Philip's War um, in New England in 1675 to 76, they don't really have a capability that's much stronger than that, and they are very dependent upon the supply of military resources from the home base. And that's where contingency plays a key role because there's nothing inevitable about the British beating France in the long wars that the two powers fight from 1689 onwards. Uh, in many senses, one would rather be betting on France, a much larger country in terms of not just its physical size, but also its population, a much stronger agricultural base, 
um, a country that doesn't have the equivalent of Scotland or Ireland, where there's a lot of discontent, if not active, uh, opposition to whichever government is based in London. In many senses, France should have been the better bet for winning the imperial race. And indeed, France is more early established in the new world in terms of major colonies. I mean, Martinique and Guadeloupe are much more prosperous as colonies, and Saint-Dominique, what we would now call Haiti, are much more prosperous as colonial uh, bases in the West Indies than Barbados or Jamaica. Jamaica is particularly uh, difficult. Um, you know, the French get themselves well established in the St. Lawrence Valley quite early on. They add to that, of course, um, Nova Scotia, they add to that what we would now call Cape Breton. The French are well established in the New World. They establish a presence on the uh, Gulf of Mexico with Louisiana. And then in a key move in 1700, the grandson of the King of France, uh, Philip Duke of Anjou, becomes Philip V of Spain. And for much, though not all, of the 18th century, France and Spain are key allies. And that strengthens further the French presence in North America, it means that the British are up against, on the whole, a cooperative alliance. And, of course, the Spaniards are there not only in the Caribbean and not only in Mexico. The Spaniards are actually, of course, on the mainland of North America itself in what we would now call Florida. And Florida in that period, as you will recall, stretches from the panhandle even further west towards the Mississippi. So the British are marginal in North America, right? It gives me no pleasure to say this, and of course I'm not in any way trying to sort of say that Richmond and places like Williamsburg or New York are not important. They are important, but they are relatively marginal compared to the combined presence of the Bourbon powers, France and Spain. So why do the British win? Well, a mixture of factors. No one factor is of unique importance. One of the factors, it's always good to complement one's hosts, one of the factors which is significant is the fact that there are more people in British North America than in French North America, and the militia units and other volunteer units uh, from the colonies on the eastern seaboard play a very major role in providing manpower uh, to in key expeditions. For example, the Lewisburg expedition of 1745, uh, which is a success. Uh, in successive expeditions into the interior, for example, the 1758 advance on what is now Pittsburgh. Obviously, it's called Pittsburgh because it's renamed after William Pitt the Elder. And also on unsuccessful expeditions, a series of e expeditions mounted uh, using southern troops, southern militia against St. Augustine, which don't work. And also, they use American troops in the Caribbean, for example, in the Carthagena expedition of 1741. But there is a crucial advantage to the British provided by that support. And on the whole, the support is quite willing and useful. People looking towards the subsequent struggle between the British and the colonists emphasise dissent. I mean, there's a book by Fred Anderson emphasising tension in the relationship between Massachusetts and uh, the British state during the French and Indian War. And of course there are disputes. But the actual substantive point, an absolute key point, is that despite these disputes, there is a willingness to fight and die uh, for part of the imperial project. And that is a very key point. I mean, at a base level, more people from Massachusetts are willing to kill Frenchmen in the French and Indian War than people from Massachusetts are willing to kill Brits during the War of 1812. That's, uh, I think, a quite important, significant factor. So, in other words, the empire works on this side of the Atlantic as well as on the other side. Second point, constitutional change in Britain. Important. 
completely accidental in some respects. James II proves an unsuccessful and unpopular monarch. He is, he is removed in what is a very close-run uh, invasion and rebellion in 1688. And the new political system after the Glorious Revolution creates a parliamentary-funded national debt, creates a politically cohesive country, incorporating most people uh, politically within it, and creates the basis for a major explosion of political and economic energy. None of that was predictable. None of that was predictable at all. For most of the 17th century, Britain had been a fairly chaotic state with civil wars, execution of the king, problems with parliamentary government. You know, if you were a colonist in the New World, you must have thought to yourself, why on earth are we allied to such a useless metropole? Um, you know, um, but actually, by the 18th century, the situation is, diff is very different. I mean, in a way that, again, would be wonderful to think of today if we were one, one is British or American. The state was fiscally stable, the most fiscally stable stable state in the world measures in, measured in terms of the very low rate of interest it had to pay in order to raise, its, raise the loans necessary to fight its uh, foreign wars. And of course it's the state which invents a series of so-called revolutions, the agricultural revolution, the transport revolution and most famously the industrial revolution. So that the British state has the resources and it also has the interest in the foreign world. Whereas the government of France has its eyes fixed firmly on territorial expansion into Germany and Italy, the state of Britain is increasingly interested in North America. So in another important anniversary for North American history that's occurring next year, which is the anniversary of the Peace of Utrecht, well, you probably not have heard of that, but that's the peace that ends the War of the Spanish Succession in 1713, the British insist on gaining Nova Scotia, they insist on gaining Hudson's Bay. That's all the lands uh, from which rivers flow into Hudson's Bay. So that's an enormous tract of Canada. Um, and they also insist on gains in the West Indies. Well, they get that because they've beaten the French, but also because the French are actually more concerned with territorial gains in Europe. And Louis XIV is willing to, as it were, yield territory in North America in order to obtain his goals in Europe. There is nothing inevitable about that. There's nothing in the water or the air which ensures that the King of France is going to subordinate colonial gains to European gains, whereas the British will have the alternative priority. And again, that plays th through into 1763. The key point about 1763 is not only that the British, in cooperation with their American colonists, have gained large territories in the New World. The key point is that in the subsequent peace, that is what they determine to hold on to. That they are, in other words, that people in London are, are really concerned. You will recall, as a French view, a very great alternative French view, Voltaire, in his uh, short novel Candide, actually says, what a waste of time it is fi fighting over the frozen wastes of North America. And Voltaire reflects, as it were, fashionable French opinion. British opinion is different. So one element one has to look at when one's looking at territorial allocation is what leads particular societies to decide that control over particular portions of territory are significant. And this, incidentally, is important as we play through American history in the 19th century because, as you will be well aware, 
the, as it were, uh, strategic geography of people in Boston is very different to the strategic geography of people in Charleston or the people in New Orleans. Um, a good example of that, if I can may just glance ahead for a second, a good example of that is the determination of Southerners in the Deep South to expand into the Caribbean and to make further gains at the expense of Mexico because the key thing about Cuba in particular, and as you may know, people like Quitman, the senator for Mississippi, um, is a great filibusterer, wants to take over Cuba. The key thing about Cuba is Cuba is the second largest slave society in the world uh, at that point. Uh, outside the United States it's the, and Brazil, those are the, um, so it's the second largest in the sense of non-American. Brazil is the largest non-American, and there's no way they're going to annex Brazil. But getting hold of Cuba would, of course, increase the number of slave states in the Union. So different people have different strategic geographies. It is not inevitable which you think of as important. Well, I don't want to talk about the War of Independence, not because it upsets me, though we have many things. <laughs> <laughs> We have many things that have gone wrong in our history since then, I have to tell you. Uh, but I think simply because I have actually had the good fortune to speak here in the past about the War of Independence and to address the issue of whether the British had won. And in a way, I don't want to reprise that, but those people who came and listened to that lecture will recall that I emphasised the role of military contingency. I emphasised the extent to which it seemed a very near-run thing at the time. And if you'd stopped the war at the beginning of 1781 and looked at it at a time when the Pennsylvania and the New York line had mutinied within the Continental Army, at a time when the French are getting increasingly fed up with the war. The French Foreign Minister, the key minister, Vergen, wants to stop the war. He wants to ally with the British to, put, to pressure the Russians. Um, at that stage, neither side had won the war. Uh, and it by no means seemed clear and obvious that it would end as it did end. And indeed, uh, you will recall that even at the very end of the war, far from the war ending with an overwhelming American military victory, the British, of course, are still in occupation or control, whatever term you wish to use, uh, after Yorktown. They're still in control of New York, of Charleston, of Savannah, and they can't be driven out. 1782 is the great forgotten year of the American War of Independence. It's the forgotten year because nothing much happens in it. See, New, uh, Washington's great plan in 1782 is to drive the British from New York City, and it's a dismal failure. Um, so... We end the war, and now I start the rest of the lecture, in 1783. And the point about that departure is this. It is terribly easy to treat American history after 1783 essentially in domestic terms. One can see, obviously, America territorially expands, but there can seem to be a sort of inevitability about it. And, of course, to American commentators in the 19th century... At the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, it seemed very inevitable, in part because many of their views were shot through with an implicit or explicit sort of cultural superiority, if not racialism, i.e., Mexicans are bound to lose, Native Americans are bound to lose, Jefferson's view on the Native Americans, for example. Therefore, there really wasn't much of an achievement. Um, you know, it was going to happen. There was a providence which meant that one was going to go from ocean to ocean, and, you know, there'd be a few inconveniences along the way. But the key issue, the key issue is not foreigners, it's internal. In other words, the key issue is relationships between the states, the key issue is the fate of slavery, the key issue culminates in the American Civil War. 
Now, if you take that point of view, then clearly foreign powers are marginal, and the issue of the shaping of America and the struggle for mastery in North America actually becomes an issue which culminates in the events of 1861 to 1865, and we all know what happens, and we can end up debating what might or might not have happened if different events had occurred at, say, Gettysburg and all the rest of it, but that becomes the subject. Now, I can talk to you on that line if you want, but actually what I'm trying to do is to appeal to your intelligence and to say it's more complicated than that. And the complexity comes from the fact that having been beaten, um, it, you know, and I think they were in the end really beaten, the Brits in 1783 don't just go away. They're still there in North America. The French and the Spaniards don't think to themselves, ah, well, North America has now been settled. They also are powers in the New World. And I would put it to you that, in fact, a key issue, an element in the history of North America f until 1871, and after that, as I've said, it ceases to be of major significance, is the fact that there are competing powers, competing imperial systems in North America, and it is not inevitable to contemporaries what would happen. Um, in fact, I would put it to you that it's only the decade 1861 to 1871 that really settles it. And I'll just briefly comment on that, and then I'll switch back to the 1780s. If you think about it, 1861 to 1871 has the issue that vexes you most, which is the Civil War, which was important. And, you know, you could argue that if the South had been more successful militarily in the 1864 campaigns, then Lincoln would not have been successful in being re-elected, that you would then have had McClellan as president and you would have had a different outcome of the war. And that's all entirely possible, all entirely possible. Uh, that's how, if you like, the South would have won the Civil War. But, and that's, it's, that is significant and that is important. But there are a whole host of other things that occur between 1861 and 1871 that help to settle the North America question. Key, that the British and the French didn't intervene as they had seriously thought of doing and as Napoleon III very much wanted to do in the American Civil War. That is important. Who knows what that would have led to, and I'm quite happy to talk about that, but that was certainly a major element. I mean, remember, Britain has the largest navy in the world. Britain has nearby bases, naval bases in places like Jamaica, Bermuda, Halifax, Nova Scotia. It has a land frontier with the Union. The British have a pretty large and experienced army, experienced at taking part in long-range power projection. In 1860, Anglo-French troops had ca captured Beijing in China. Compared to the difficulty of taking Beijing, Washington would have been easy. So one has to remember, you're talking about the world's leading powers at that time. So that's important. What else is important? Well, the French, after all, do intervene in North America in the 1860s. They do send an army into North America in the 1860s. Where they intervene in, in the end, is Mexico. Um, and they famously, of course, put Maximilian on the throne. They capture Mexico City, etc., etc. And in the end of the day... After the American Civil War, uh, there is a confrontation between the American government and the French. People think it might lead to war. It doesn't. There's two ways you can play this. There's two separate ways. American historians conventionally say, because obviously they would think in these terms, they conventionally say that the threat of American intervention leads the French to pull out. Well, actually, no. The reason the French pull out is the French are really concerned by the fact that in 1866 the Prussians have beaten the Austrians and they realise they're going to be next and Napoleon III focuses on Europe instead. That is the key factor. But the point being a double point. One, that the Americans cannot determine the course of relations in Europe. It's a classic problem. It's a problem for the rest of the world now. If you are the world's leading power, which at that stage is Britain, 
and French is, France is the great wannabe, um, if you are the world's leading power, then the fact of the matter is it's very difficult for other powers to dictate what you do. I mean, one of the reasons the British don't intervene in the American Civil War is the fact that from 1863 onwards, they get drawn into the idea that they may end up in war breaking out over the Schleswig-Holstein question, as it in fact does do in 1864. They become much more focused on European power politics. So the Americans have the problem that the Europeans are intervening in the New World without the Americans being able to determine it. What else happens in the 1860s that helps to mould the shape in North America? Well, not only do the French fail in Mexico and leave, which is important, the Spaniards give up their attempt at power projection. Uh, the Spaniards, a, main, a minor player at that point, but the Spaniards in the 1860s had sent troops into the Dominican Republic, uh, much to the irritation of the Americans. They'd sent warships against Peru, much to the irritation of the Americans. Um, the Spaniards were sort of flexing their muscles in the New World. They give up in 1866 because there's a revolution in Spain. The Russians sell up Alaska and the Aloitian Islands in 1867, which ends Russian America. The British, of course, push through confederation in Canada as a precondition for actually pulling out most of their troops from Canada. Um, so all of these help to settle the North America question so that by 1871, North America is actually really under the military and political control, effectively either directly or indirectly, of the United States. But prior to that, that had not been inevitable. And you have the sort of shape that you get on the map up there. So let's go back to 1783. And let's start to think a bit about how much of the history of the early republic, many of the political disputes of the early republic, the disputes surrounding uh, the constitution writing in the 1780s, the disputes surrounding the tension between the federalist tendency and the democratic republican tendency of the 1790s, and of course that's uh, linked to the disputes between the idea of central government and the states, states' rights, of course Virginia playing a prominent role, and then you can play that forward, disputes in the 1800s and early 18-teens between federalists and democratic republicans. All of those should be seen in part in terms of the way in which American history is being shadowed and American politics is being shadowed by these other powers. These other powers are there. Remember, the Americans have signed a peace treaty with the Brits in 1783. Neither side feels that the other side is observing the peace treaty. The British argue that the Americans fail to fulfill their promises to provide compensation for the territory of seized loyalists, the British are certainly correct in that, but the British then use that as an excuse to hold on to forts in what the Americans call the Old Northwest and to go on supplying Native Americans with arms. So both sides feels angry with the other. That issue remains a very serious issue until the mid-1790s, 1794-95, when the Americans finally deal with the Native American opposition in the Ohio River Valley. And one of the reasons they're able to do that is, of course, uh, because the British hang back in 94-95. Now, why do the British hang back? As you may know, I've written a book on James Bond, so if I was in the mood, I'd press a button here if anybody didn't feel like answering, and we'd have a display, we'd have a display of PowerPoint. You know, I've got the point, and you get the power. Um, but the answer, is, the answer is, of course, that the British actually have to fight a real war from 1793 onwards, which is a war against revolutionary France. And that means that they do not have the opportunity 
to take a forward policy in North America that they might otherwise have wished to do and which certainly their officials on the ground, their military officers, their governors, lieutenant governors on the ground want to take this forward policy. And that brings out a more general point, which is this. A key element of the early opportunity for the United States is the fact that between 1793 and 1815, the British are busy elsewhere. At the same point, incidentally, for the Russian Revolution, as you may remember, the Russian Revolution, I'm not suggesting that the American Revolution is coterminous with the Russian Revolution, but there are similarities in terms of international relations. The Russian Revolution is followed by foreign intervention, but it's pretty half-hearted because, of course, the Western powers are exhausted after World War I, uh, their militaries are exhausted, and their civil populations, very clear in, in, in America and Britain and France, their civil populations want the war over as quickly as possible. And that gives the Russian Revolution is a key, as it were, period in the, 19, in the 1920s and 1930s to squabble among themselves, uh, to take part in um, what the Soviet communists had in way of constitution forming, which is a much more vicious policy than occurred here. Um, but, you know, they're able to do that because everybody else is not really going to bother them. The same thing is true for the United States. The United States is extraordinarily fortunate, and this is contingent, it is not inevitable. They're extraordinarily fortunate that in a way France has its revolution, that the revolution, which starts in 1789, the revolution leads to a much greater energy in French war making, much more so than under the Bourbons, that uh, revolutionary France and then Napoleonic France is a much greater threat to the British than Ancien Regime France had ever been, and therefore the British are busy. They cannot do what their people in Canada want to do, which is to help the Native Americans, and deliberately so, in order to keep a buffer between Canada and, and uh, the United States. So that is significant because it's interesting to note that if you look at early diplomatic reports coming out of America, I can remember reading the reports of the French Chargé d'Affaires in America in 1790, in which he is predicting that America will split. He predicts America will split between three countries, the North, the South, and Trans-Appalachia. And that was a fairly common view among foreign commentators, their view that America was essentially a fragile system, that as a federal system it wouldn't work well, and that this is not the age of republics. And of course, on the whole, they were absolutely right. If you look at the situation, 1787, the United Provinces, what we would call the Netherlands, which was a federal republic, rather like, with a, you know, a federal republic of a group of, uh, of provinces, which rather like the United States, it is conquered by a Prussian army supported by British naval action. Uh, during the French Revolutionary Wars, um, Venice, an ancient republic, is conquered by the French. Genoa, an ancient republic, is conquered by the French. 1794-95, Poland, a limited elected monarchy. In some respects, the United States under its presidency is an elected monarchy. A limited elected monarchy is partitioned out of existence by the Russians, the Prussians, and the Austrians. In other words, this is not the age of republics. Republics appear anachronistic and failing in a much more bloody and determined age where the energies of states able to mobilize their full resources will dictate results. So in many respects, it's not so much geography. You know, the American founding fathers kidded themselves that they were able, because of the Atlantic, to be absent from this process. Absolute rubbish. 
The British and the French were quite able to slug it out in the West Indies, quite able to project troops much further than um, the United States. The British, after all, in the 1790s and 1800s were also conquering bits of India, which formidably, much more um, formidable in terms of distance and environment and disease uh, than the United States. What in fact it is, is the concentration of the British on fighting the French and of the French on fighting the British. And America plays a role in part only as um, a, as it were, bit part in this. I mean, let me give you a good example, the War of 1812. The War of 1812 is usually treated as a sort of struggle uh, between Britain and the, and the uh, Americans over uh, maritime links and over the British support um, for uh, Native Americans and the determination of the war hawks in the Western states, people like Henry Clay, in order to launch a war of conquest of Guns Canada to stop this. All of that is true. But you also have to think of the timing. Why do the Americans go to war against Britain? I mean, nobody in their right mind would have imagined that you could beat Britain in that period. The reason the Americans go to war against Britain is because they are convinced that the British have lost to the French. After all, by the summer of 1812, Napoleon is in secure control of all of Western Europe, with the exception of some continuing opposition in Spain. Um, he's in control of Central Europe. He is about to invade Russia at the head of an army of 600,000 troops, the largest army the West has ever yet seen. Much of that army provided not by French troops, but by allied contingents from powers like Prussia and Austria, former opponents that are now all part of the Napoleonic system. It appears obvious to Americans that they are backing the winning side in the great war within Europe. Uh, they're backing the winning side in the great war within the European system, and that that is why they're going to win. Uh, you, I don't wish to be offensive, but the Canadian historian Richard Glover compared... Uh, uh, he's dead now, so, uh, so his, uh, you know, you, whatever you might say about him, it's not going to affect him. Uh, he compared America's entry into the war to Mussolini coming into World War II on June the 10th, 1940, after, the, after Mussolini was convinced that the French and the British had lost. In other words, you're backing the winning side, you're out to grab your bits. Unfortunately... From the American point of view, unfortunately, uh, Napoleon goes pear-shaped in uh, Russia. It goes disastrously wrong. Uh, and that, of course, launches the disintegration of the French alliance system, the Russian move into Poland and then into Germany, and the collapse of Napoleon. By the end of 1812, the Americans know they've lost. Simple as that. Of course, they don't, they don't, they don't mention it in, uh, in widely in public, but American policymakers know they've lost, and they're asking the Russians, of all people, to try and negotiate an end to the war, to try and mediate between Britain and, and Russia. And the Russians are quite willing to do that because the Russians want the British not to fight the Americans. The Russians want the British to concentrate even more on fighting the French. Um, the British say no, any negotiation will be direct between us and the Americans. Um, the Americans then try the Swedes, that, who are also part of the anti-French coalition. That doesn't work. And, of course, as 1813 drags on and Napoleon collapses more and more and more, then the Americans get more and more and more desperate. It doesn't actually fundamentally matter what happens on the Canadian frontier. It doesn't matter what happens in sh exchanges between ships. Most of the military history of the War of 1812 is totally irrelevant. America is back to the wrong side in the World War, and it knows it's got to get out as quickly as possible. And in 1814, Napoleon abdicates, and then it really does get serious. 
Um, and just as a reminder of the trouble that the British can cause, um, it's worth bearing in mind that you would generally think of 1815 in the Greater Caribbean in terms of the British defeat at New Orleans, which indeed was a serious defeat. It's worth bearing in mind that the British not only go on to capture uh, the fort outside Mobile and to plan an attack on Charleston, but also in 1815, just to show who's boss in the, Medi sorry, in the Caribbean, the British, Napoleon's come back into France, Napoleon, the French colonies declare for Napoleon, so the British sent an expeditionary force to Martinique and capture it, and an expeditionary force to Guadeloupe and capture it as well. In other words, they are still a serious challenge at that point. So one can play through this early American history and one can note the extent to which American constitution making actually takes place in the shadow of the threat from outside. And that helps to explain federalism. That helps to explain what Alexander Hamilton is on about. Hamilton's point is not that we want a stronger government for the fun of it. It's not that we want a stronger government because we want to raise more taxes. It's not that we want a stronger government to irritate these people in Virginia. We need a stronger government to deal with the Brits. We need a navy. Remember what had happened at the end of the, of the war, of the War of Independence? The Americans had wound up the navy. They'd got rid of the navy, which meant that, of course, the Americans became very vulnerable um, in the 1790s uh, when they confront uh, France in the uh, Quasi-War. And indeed, a navy has quickly built but as a result of subscriptions, uh, charitable subscriptions, large public subscriptions, largely by Philadelphia merchants. I mean, the, that is the depth of the fiscal and uh, military crisis in the United States. They don't have a navy. And their navy is sufficiently weak, of course, that in the 1800s, the only people they're able to take on are the Barbary pirates of North Africa. Nobody big can be confronted. Um, on top of that, the army is tiny. Why is the army tiny? Because, in fact, there's a sort of anti-state, anti-army ideology um, in the 1780s, which leaves America terribly vulnerable in the early stages of the war in the beginning of the 17, um, 1790s against Native Americans in the Ohio uh, country. Indeed, in the first campaign, uh, Arthur Sinclair actually loses um, because the army is just too weak, not prepared. There just aren't the troops. Uh, Henry Knox had been absolutely desperate about the situation in the 80s. So one of the whole points about the Federalist case is we need a stronger state because we have to confront these foreign powers. Now, incidentally, precisely that they don't get the war that they fear makes the Federalists look as though they've made the wrong call. And subsequently, of course, the way that the War of 1812 is sold to the public, i.e. the War of 1812 is a success, look what happens at uh, you know, Fort McHenry outside Baltimore, look what happens at New Orleans, we don't actually need a large state, uh, we don't need a large military, we can do it ourselves, the militia will do the job. Complete rubbish. I mean, what America had set out to do in the war was to open the ability to trade freely abroad, as opposed to having to put up with the British telling them who they could trade with, and also to capture Canada, neither of which had been achieved. America militarily and politically is hopelessly weak, which is what helps to, you know, produce this tension. If you want a modern anal analogue, I mean, my job is obviously to finish in 1871, but if you want a modern analogue, the real reason for the current history of America is that since the 1940s, the nature of the government expanded because America obviously did confront foreign wars, First World War II and then the Cold War, which drove a development of the federal government for both Republicans and Democrats uh, across the party divide. And obviously people 
disagreed about particular details of it, but they did understand that you cannot fight a world war with the governmental system that was in place in 1931. Now, unfortunately, in, or fortunately for the British, in the early 19th century, actually, you do get people like Jefferson who fondly believe that America can be a great power with the governmental system that he wants in 1801. It doesn't work, of course. And, of course, it only subsequently works because the Americans are fortunate um, that nobody really powerful decides to fight them. So they are actually able to have a holiday from history. They're able to convince themselves that they are a major power because all that they're actually up against are Native Americans and Mexicans. And, you know, the Mexican state is weak. The Mexican state is affected by federalism of a great, a very acute level. Uh, in other words, the individual provinces fight each other. Uh, the great Cordillo, Santa Ana, is unpopular. There are a series of rebellions in Mexico in the 1830s and 1840s. And from Mexico to fight the Americans, or to fight first the Texan Revolution and then the Americans subsequently in the 1840s, is astonishingly difficult under those circumstances. Same thing in the Oregon question. President Polk, of course, comes to power having promised that he will fight if he doesn't get a boundary which approximates to the northern boundary of British Columbia. Why does he pick that boundary? He basically is saying to the electorate there will be America up to Russian territory in Alaska. He doesn't want to have war with Russia, but he wants territory as far up as that. And what happens? Well, you won't be surprised to hear the British mobilise the fleet um, and the Americans decide that, well, maybe actually it would be better to, to go for a compromise boundary so that the Americans go for Oregon and Washington and the British keep British Columbia and Vancouver Island. Vancouver Island is the great prize because that's where the major naval base is at Esquimalt, still there, uh, the Canadian Navy's base still there. So in other words, the Americans are very fortunate because in the 1840s they are not really ready to go to war with Britain. What about the Civil War? Um, what about the Civil War if Britain had come into that or Britain and France had come into that? Well, it would have been difficult for both sides. The strategic problem for Britain would have been that the Union might well have invaded Canada. And Canada, they were well aware of, was not brilliantly easy to defend because the great problem with Canada is that, in a sense, its forward east-west uh, corridor is along the St. Lawrence and the railway system that they were building along the St. Lawrence. And, of course, that would be easy to interrupt by people invading from the south. But, of course, let's be reasonable, in 1862, 1863, the Union had other people to send troops against than, the, than Canada. In other words, they would have gone on probably focusing on the war against the Confederacy. At sea, well, the Americans are building good ships. The monitors are good ships. Um, the, uh, the American historian Howard Fuller, who's done some interesting work on Ericsson and, and, and his monitors, has argued very clearly that the key element of Ericsson's ship design was not, in fact, to produce ships to fight the Confederacy, that that was the side effect of it. The key element was to persuade, produce ships to deter the British from intervening. And indeed, that was an important, you know, very important economically for the United States and strategically. They did not want British warships um, interfering on the uh, eastern side seaboard. I think it's fair to say that those monitors, although they were impressive as defensive shipping in shallow waters like the entrance to the Chesapeake off Norfolk, they were not deep sea ships. They didn't have the draft uh, to deal with the rolling on the ocean. Uh, they would have had real problems at being deployed at any particular distance. So you would have had the clash between a deep sea navy, which was the British navy, and a shallow waters navy, much of which was brown water. 
difficult to know exactly what would have happened. And again, it's very difficult to know what would have happened between the new rifled guns of the British warships and the old masonry forts defending places like um, New York. But certainly the Americans were acutely concerned about it, which is why, of course, the end of the Trent Affair, the Americans, give, I take it you know what happens, the, uh, the Union Navy takes off the Confederate envoys to Britain and France takes them off a royal, British royal packet steamer, in other words, a, a ship that is taking them from the Bahamas back to, uh, back to England. And the British choose to treat that as a causus belli. The British argue that, you know, this is an infringement of British uh, sovereignty because this is a royal ship um, and that, you know, if the Americans don't hand these people back, they've been put into a prison in Boston. If they don't hand these people back, there's going to be trouble. This is the Trent Affair. And, of course, the, uh, in the end of the day, after a lot of sort of sabre-rattling in America, the Americans do hand them back. And I think that's quite an interesting choice. I mean, they could probably uh, have, you know, have decided to not do so and to see what would have happened. And the British government, I'm not sure quite what it would have done. I mean, I've read the instructions to the Admiral on the North America station, and the Admiral is resupplied with new warships. Uh, he's given instructions uh, to attack if necessary. Um, but, you know, I think it's quite clear the British don't want to go for a war because they are busy so many other places in the world. They have other interests to pursue at this point. Uh, the second uh, period of potential intervention is in the uh, late summer and early autumn of 1862, where the British cabinet does debate intervention. Napoleon III is calling for intervention. What they are proposing to do is to demand that both sides stop fighting in order to allow peaceful mediation to take place. Well, that sounds very nice and jolly, doesn't it? But the point about that is that the assumption that Napoleon III made was that the Confederacy would say yes and the Union would say no, which would then, of course, put the Union in a position of defying an attempt, an international attempt to negotiate peace and therefore provide, again, a causus belli. Um, and the British government does, again, think very seriously. The government is split. William Gladstone, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, gives a speech in Newcastle, uh, famously uh, saying that the Confederacy is as a state and should be treated as a state. In other words, that this is a war between states, not a civil war, and therefore that the Union's right to try and blockade the South must stop and that the British should try and open their trade to the South. Um, since the North had never signed up um, to uh, international regulations allowing blockade. It was in a very difficult legal position uh, if people chose to, to break the blockade of the South. And the government really is divided, very divided. Um, and, you know, one thing that helps them to make their mind up is Antietam, the very fact that Lee fails at Antietam, that the campaign advance in the North is not maintained, seems to suggest that the South is not inevitably going to survive. Um, other factors, though, come into play. Uh, the government is uh, very concerned about developments in Europe. It also doesn't trust Napoleon III. I think that's a pretty key point. It doesn't trust the French. And ultimately, you know, distrust of the French is more important to Palmerston, who's the prime minister, much more important to him than what wondering about the United States. So the point I'm trying to make is that repeatedly, if you look at American history through this period, you can emphasise the uncertainties of international relations. You can emphasise the degree to which what would happen militarily was unclear. And you can then try and draw attention to what I think is really important, which is the role of this in domestic American politics. 
And one of the interesting things to do, and I'll close on that point, and I make several references of this in my book, which I hope you'll find of some interest. One of the points I make is if you actually look, for example, at the British state papers, you will come across many cases in which American politicians actually talk in this fashion to British diplomats. I mean, obviously, it's easy for them to do that, because American, obviously not just a common language, but American politicians associate, depending upon their political preference, associate themselves with one or other of the major political parties in Britain. Now, in some cases, we're talking about downright treason, obviously, the Burr-Wilkinson affair, which is, you know, very interesting, you know, with the pressure by Burr on the British to locate warships off the mouth of the Mississippi in order to help his separatist uh, ambitions. So I'm not so much thinking of that. I'm thinking more, for example, of the reports of Lord Lyons, 1862, the British envoy to Washington, and his discussions with democratic politicians in 1862 as to what is going to happen if they do well in the midterms, what this will mean and whether the democratic politicians want Britain to pressure uh, the American government or don't want Britain to pressure the American government. Lyons is close to the democratic politicians, and he is trying to persuade the British government to do everything possible to help them against Lincoln. Now, this is a level of politics that is worth thinking about. Again, American, American uh, commentators are used to the idea that their politics are in some way separate from the politics of the wider world. Uh, maybe that's what the Constitution said, but actually what one knows, notes frequently if one's looking at American history is the idea of American exceptionalism, the Ameri idea of American separateness has to be brought face to face with a much more complex reality. Last point. You might think this is a rather negative account. Uh, it certainly doesn't me measure up to some of the heady rhetoric of early, uh, early uh, founding fathers. But actually, if you think about it, what this is as a about is a very pro-American account. It argues that there is nothing inevitable about the success of the United States in the 19th century. It argues that part of that success was indeed due to the policies of other states, but part of it was due to the skill um, and luck, but luck often comes with skill, the skill and luck of a number of American politicians and a number of American administrations. And I think if you move away from this idea of treating exceptionalism as something that makes one bound to win and actually understands the role of contingency more, you understand the importance of being, as you are fortunate to be, members of an active and engaged civil democracy and the importance of the choices that you make and are fortunate enough to be able to make at regular occasions. Thank you very much. We're going to do questions a little differently today. If you have questions, there's a microphone up there, and obviously there's one down here. So please come down and, um, as Jeremy would say, cue up. And he will call on you from the stage, and then when he does, you may ask your question. It's 350 years of history, folks. There have to be questions here. Yes, sir. Yep. Well, you seem to reaffirm that old truth that it's better lucky than good. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the role of the um, Native Americans, as they were pretty much pawns, as it were. Is that fair to say? Well, that's very interesting. The gentleman has asked for a little bit more on the Native Americans and whether they were pawns. 
Well, to an extent, sir, they are, they are pawns in the wider context of international diplomacy in the sense that their territories are allocated in treaties like the Peace of Paris, the, uh, uh, the Treaty of Versailles of 1783, the Peace of Ghent at the end of the War of 1812. Yes, these are all in a way pawns. But on the other hand, they're also independent players. And I think it's fair to say that until the 1780s, early 1790s, the Native Americans east of the Mississippi are still very important in the Old Northwest, and you could argue that's true into the early 18-teens. You could argue that the really important aspect of the War of 1812 is it brings the defeat of the Native Americans in the, uh, in the Northwest. Uh, the, it also brings, of course, the defeat of the, Ameri of the Native Americans in the Southeast, the defeat of the Creeks, um, in 1814, battles like uh, uh, Horseshoe Bend. Uh, west of the Mississippi, the presence of the American state is really quite minor. I mean, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 um, it, it means absolutely nothing if you're living um, in a state like, well, obviously it wasn't a state of that period, like Nebraska. You know, you wouldn't have noticed. Um, so the Native Americans west of the Mississippi remain really quite important. And um, if you're interested in reading a scholarly American account of this, uh, Sam Watson at uh, West Point, who's got some very good stuff on the American army in the 1820s and 30s. I mean, he draws attention to the way in which American army movements west of the Mississippi, particularly in the 20s, are still very tentative. Um, so, you know, I would say that the Native Americans might at one level be pawns. Nobody's consulting them about the Louisiana Purchase. But on the ground, they are not pawns. This is for people taller than I am. Oh. Can this uh, Devonian from Wollacombe welcome you back to Richmond? Oh, thank you. Um, and uh, can I hope that despite your concentration on American history, my grandson, who's in your department back in the University of Richmond doing an undergraduate degree, is getting a solid uh, basis of British history. Um, could you tell us when the first concept of America as a coast-to-coast -coast country uh, came in, into political thought over here, and I'm surprised that you've not used the term Monroe Doctrine at any stage up to now. Okay. I've been asked about when the idea of a coast-to-coast -coast America develops and also about the Monroe Doctrine. Let's take the first point initially. The idea of reaching to a Western Ocean, in fact, is there quite early on. Some of the discussion in print in Britain, they have no idea of the size of North America. Some of the discussion to do with John Smith actually has this idea of reaching to the Great Southern Ocean. You know, they know there's a Great Southern Ocean. Remember, Sir Francis Drake um, has turned up in, you know, off near San Francisco um, at the end of the 1570s, 1579. So there is this vague idea that somehow it will be easy to get from Virginia to California. But in practical terms, in practical terms, for the early republic, a key decision is the decision uh, before the, for the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, that is a very important decision. 
um, the idea of trying to explore to the, the West there. Um, it's also clear key the uh, economic interests. John Jacob Astor and the establishment of bases on the Pacific coast. I mean, Astoria, of course, uh, which he establishes, which the British capture in the War of 1812. The development from the 1780s onwards out of Salem of America's China trade and the American China traders go round the Cape and then they go up and trade not just to China but to the what we would call the Pacific Northwest. So there is a greater interest in America as a Pacific power, a sense that America ought to reach out to China. The key point about China being that China isn't an area under the territorial sway of either Britain or France or Spain. So it represents an opportunity for the Americans. And then an idea that in America, is, as it were, is a space that has to be circumvented to get there. Now, um, that doesn't mean that if you are a merchant in Salem or Boston or Philadelphia that you necessarily see much interest in what we would call the Great Prairies. You know, there's economic interest um, in, for example, areas like Ohio, Indiana. But remember, before the railway... Uh, this is actually going to be a great problem at moving west of the Mississippi. The idea is that you have a big trade route down to New Orleans, which helps to explain the importance of the Louisiana Purchase, and then you can actually go up the Missouri as well. But the idea of reaching from that to the Pacific seems very difficult. And if you're interested in that, a good example of that is what happens to America, American policy in Central America in the 1850s. Uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt sets up a company to build a railway uh, across Nicaragua. It's to go from the coast to the big lake and then the bit in the middle and then the big lake to the Pacific. And, of course, intervenes in Nicaraguan politics and one of the greatest of the American filibusters, uh, Walker, also intervenes, becomes president of, uh, of um, Nicaragua. And the reason for that is this seems the obvious way to California and to the gold fields. In other words, the way to California is via Nicaragua. The idea of actually being able to build a railway across seems a very tall order in the eight, early 1850s. And it reminds us that it's terribly easy to think in terms of inevitability. We know there's going to be a transcontinental railway. We know that all these lands in the middle, you know, Idaho, Utah, really quite complicated topography and terrain, is going to be not just claimed by the Americans, not just have a few military bases, but actually subsumed into you know, the United States. That wasn't so obvious to all contemporaries. So you, got, so you get, as it were, people in Washington talking about coast-to-coast providential destiny and businessmen thinking yes 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 uh, now how on earth do we get our trade trade routes around to California and where what route are we going to follow uh, the Monroe Doctrine the Monroe Doctrine just to remind people 1823 uh, James Monroe uh, issues uh, this document uh, proclamation saying that basically the um, uh, the powers of the old world shouldn't interfere in the new world it's aimed against Spain in particular. It's aimed to, in other words, extend the guarantee of the American Republic to the new Latin American republics that have broken away from Spain. So Simon Bolivar and, you know, uh, Grand Colombia, what we would now call Colombia and Venezuela and Ecuador and Argentina and Chile and all the rest. Um, well, you know, it's very important and it's, uh, people now play a tilt of attention at it. At the time, it meant absolutely nothing to anybody because the British couldn't care less. The real guarantee of South American independence is the Royal Navy. It's the Royal Navy makes it absolutely clear, Canning is the foreign minister, that he will not allow... Uh, Spain to regain these, uh, these territories. And the Americans know that. I mean, the Americans are freeloading in some respects. The Monroe Doctrine is freeloading on British naval power. 
Uh, and America becomes, it's very interesting this, America becomes a major close water, brown water, close sea naval power in the, in the, um, in the Civil War. Then you get a really important moment in American military history, which is 1865, now, obviously, you think of it in terms of Appomattox, and I do urge you to go on this tour. But, I mean, do bear in mind that the key thing in 1865 on the world scale is not that the North wins the Civil War, that is important, but the key thing is that the North then demobilises. The North in 1865 has a battle-hardened army under good generals. It has the world's second-largest navy. Okay? What do they do with it? Do they use it to try and conquer Mexico, to try and conquer Cuba, to try and conquer Canada? No, of course not. I mean, the nature of American political society wouldn't have allowed them to do that. We know that. But actually, that is really important. And America then only builds up a large navy from the 1890s on, and particularly, of course, with Teddy Roosevelt and the Great White Fleet. And what's interesting about that is that, again, is linked to your politics. There's no inherent reason in 1907 why America needs a large fleet. Nobody's threatening America. But what is happening is a combination of industrial interests, particularly steel interests in, in uh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, East Coast uh, political groupings, and people that believe that America is spending too much time thinking of itself as primarily a continental power, and it needs to take a much more active role on the world stage, preponderantly for economic interest and self-interest. These are the people that are behind the big naval build-up. And of course, the big naval build-up also has the great advantage that you don't need conscription for it. Two. There's a gentleman there and a lady here. Let's go for two. Quickly, Kay. I'm not as quick as Well, you've got a chance because he's... No, I mean, it's not, first of all, that's an interesting question. No, 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 just, just, no, I mean, first, no, just, just, that's enough, you've asked the question. That, that's the, um, the, well, one of the things about being a professor is you can say things like that, okay? You know, I'm not, I'm not seeking elected office, all right? You know, I don't, I don't have to, now, now the, the, that's a very good question. It's a very, very good question as to whether his, and in a way it's part of the public, uh, public engagement of historians is should historians look more to the future? And I think that's a very good question and a very interesting one. The difficulty is that if you think about what I've actually been saying, what I've been saying in a way is that the role of contingency in other words, contingency in the shape of how you vote in elections, what happens in your, in, your, in your internal affairs, but also what happens in the wider world is very important. And if I could just illustrate two points about that. If you look at the last 15 years, the two most significant things in America's strategic position are ones that are not really adequately pointed out. One is, the other isn't. The one that is pointed out it's the change that has occurred domestically. And the change that has occurred domestically is you have run a tremendous deficit. And obviously, your ability to act as you wish on the world scale is compromised if every day you need foreign currency inflows. And that's an important point. It's equally true of my country. What doesn't tend to be put, 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 given enough thought of 
is that actually the strategic situation of the United States has been greatly compromised because the achievement of the 1970s, which is that America benefited from the Sino-Soviet split of 1960, and they developed a strategic partnership with China against Russia. So the key thing is that the, as it were, the two main hostile powers were split. Um, that strategic uh, advantage was, was thrown away, lost. I mean, it depends upon what phrase you want to do as to whether you want to imply blame uh, or neglect, but essentially in the 2000s. That was the most important strategic challenge to the United States in the 2000s. Not 2001, terrible as those atrocities were, not the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, problematic as they were. The most important strategic challenge is the closer relationship between China and Russia. Now, I simply do not know what is going to happen in Chinese and Russian policymaking. And in a sense, that is part of a dynamic relationship with American policymaking in which one cannot tell how that, that trio is going to work out. And that, in a way, affects America's options. So you look to the past, and the lesson in the past is the options of America are affected by, you know, it's not, America is the world's greatest power, but, and, and will remain so, I very much hope. But America's options, whether it's the world's greatest power or whether it's the world's not greatest power, as it was in this period, they are still affected by what the other powers do. Um, and in a way, uh, the lesson from the past is you cannot predetermine what other powers do. You have to be prepared for them doing what you don't want. You have to try and get them to do what you do want, but you cannot predict what will happen. So that's a very good question, and that's my answer. Yes, sir, last question. Uh, thank you. Uh, frankly, two, but I, if you could give me a brief answer. First, there's a myth that, except for one vote, uh, our native language would be German. Uh, please answer that question. The second one, uh, my family went by, from a county in Georgia to southern Indiana in 1808 by wagon train that took two and a half months to four months, depending on the story. Do you know what particular uh, event in Congress perhaps made people from Georgia go to Indiana? But the main question, if you have time for just one, is how come we're talking English and not German or French? Um. Well, I can't tell you about the post-1783. I have never heard, other than in terms of what I would call a fairy story, that that is the case. I mean, obviously, if you think about it, there, was, there were a reasonable number of German settlers in Pennsylvania, uh, but the vast majority of settlers in the 13 colonies were of British antecedents. Their only language of instruction, their only language of education, crucially, their language in religion, in the church, which was absolutely fundamental point, is English. So, no, I don't think German was ever a prospect. As far as 1808 is concerned, as in fact that map shows you, the territories in the upper Midwest are opening up the effect of defeats of the Native Americans, although, in fact, the, Amer the Native Americans in northern Indiana aren't to be finally defeated in it until the War of 1812, opens up a lot of land for settlement. Georgia itself, much of Georgia had proved quite difficult land to settle, and also its profitability was less than South Carolina, which very much it affected the feasibility of Georgia. Um, and Georgia still, in 1808, is under a lot of pressure from the Creeks uh, and the Cherokee. So western Georgia is still a bit difficult. So it's an understandable move in 1808 to go north for soil which is going to be uh, fresh soil for cultivation and where Native Americans are less of a threat than they would be in West Georgia. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.